0: So, good to be with you guys. We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are starting chapter 2. The tone changes a little bit. I'll talk about that in a second. Things start to shift in chapter 2. But let me find my place, and then we'll get started. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4, you guys. All right, I got to get there along with you so we can get started collectively. All right, I think we're there. All right, let me open with this. So in the game of football, there is no game without the ball. Players can put on the gear, they can wear their helmets, they can walk around in their cleats, but there's no game without the pigskin. Nothing really matters much in football if you don't have a football. When you think about it, that little piece of pigskin pigskin controls a lot. A touchdown is only a touchdown measured by where the ball is. A first down is only a first down measured by where the ball is. You are onside or offside in relationship to the ball. Whether it's a catch or an incomplete pass depends on how you control the ball. Everything has to do with the ball. (laughs) Three points or a lack of three points has to do with where the ball went or where it didn't go. Isn't it amazing? You can have all the other stuff right But if there's no football, you just wasted a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. In the Christian faith, it's possible to have a bunch of stuff right. You can go to the right church, carry the right Bible, use the right Christian language we call Christianese. You can have all the accessories. (laughs) I need to get accessorized in my Christianity. You can have all the accessories of Christianity and still not have the main thing. If you don't have the main thing, everything else is a waste of time. Just like we can't play football without a football, you can't be effective Christians without the gospel message of Jesus Christ, because there's power in the name of Jesus. Everything boils down to that gospel message, which means if there's an enemy, he's going to do everything he can to shut down the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He wants to (laughs) punt the football. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He understood this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. It changes people's lives. It breaks chains to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That means people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And the righteous shall live by faith. And that's found in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It leads to faith and it leads to righteousness because the righteousness of God is found in the gospel message. And so the enemy must steer us off course from the gospel message. Paul also says to the church in Corinth in his first letter, chapter nine, verse 23, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Not most things, not the majority of my day. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I don't know that I live like that. I want to, but I don't know that I do. But Paul did. He understood the importance and the power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ so that he can become a partaker of it because he recognized that there's power in the name of Jesus and that it breaks every chain and nothing is more important than the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Church, let's pray. Lord, we we just bow before you because you're God. Because you love us. Because there is a gospel message that we are a part of. And we want to do that better, Lord. We really do. And we thank you so much for your grace and mercy and patience and tenderness towards us as we continue to learn how to advance your gospel message in our lives, in the lives of those around us, in our communities, and in our homes and families. Help us to do that, Lord. May we do all things for the sake of the gospel. Show us what that looks like a little bit more this week, a little bit more next week, a little bit more next month, that we may indeed become people who do all things for the sake of the gospel. Forgive us where we fall short, but reveal that to us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Have your way, we pray, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. All right, so good to be with you guys. Good morning. Hey, I want to revisit kind of where we're at, what we're about to read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I want to give us some context. So let's go back to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapters 16 and 17, okay? So I want to give us some context for where we're going to be at in Thessalonians. So the book of Acts chapter 16, let's look at verses 22, 23, and 24. I'll give you a second to, to turn there. Acts chapter 16. Let's start at verse 22. So where they're at right now, what we're about to read, they're in the city of Philippi. That's where Paul and Silas and Timothy are at. They're in Philippi. Verse 22. So the crowd rose up together, those in Philippi, against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. What for? What were they being beaten for? For sharing the gospel message. Wow. Verse 23, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Then the rest of the chapter, they get released because they're wrongfully, they're being mistreated. They're wrongfully accused. They didn't do anything. Paul's a Roman citizen. So they get released, but they say, please leave town. And so they leave town. Let's go to chapter 17, read the first 15 verses there. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia on their way to Thessalonica, so they're traveling west, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, that's what he would do. He went to the synagogue where the Jewish people were and others. And he, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so now he's doing the same thing that he just got beaten for. He's doing the same thing in Thessalonica. <laughs> Arguably, he still has scabs all over his body on some level. And there he is preaching again in Thessalonica. Is that crazy? So he goes in there for three Sabbaths. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, though so they knew that there was going to be this king, this Messiah. The Jewish people knew that some king's going to come. And so he's giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer, whoever this Christ was, and was going to rise again from the dead. And he says, this Jesus guy, whom I'm proclaiming to you, he's that Messiah. And some of them, some of the Jews, some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. They gave their lives to Christ. And along with them were a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. So with more Greeks... More leading women, less Jews, but some Jews. Verse 5, but the Jews, the rest of them, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring Paul and, and Silvanus and Timothy out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Oh, wow, Jesus just kind of puts a wrench in people's plans. Jesus upsets the world in such a fantastic way because there's power in the name of Jesus, whether we give our lives to him or whether we resist him. He is here to upset the world. He's here to restore us back into a relationship with the almighty God, and I'm so thankful that he came to upset the world. Amen? Where am I? I'm in verse 7. Thanks for your help. (laughs) And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. this Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received, they pledged from Jason and the others. They released these men. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, which is about 40 miles more to the west. And when they arrived... What do you think they do? They went to the synagogue of the Jews. Like, what a doggone troublemaker, right? Isn't that fantastic? Now, these, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. Was Jesus really the Messiah? Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, But when the Jews of Thessalonica, which is 40 miles away, okay, when they found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained. And they escorted Paul, and they took him as far as Athens in receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible they also left this is what's happening in our context of second Thessalonians chapters chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 so go back to Thessalonians first Thessalonians chapter 2 it's just such a great story to understand what's happening and when Paul's writing this letter so if you remember church in chapter 1, Paul is commending the Thessalonians, the, Thess- the church at Thessalonica, for just doing well, for killing it. He goes from commending them, and now he goes to defending himself. And so it just turns. He's like, great job, great job, great job, church, you're doing a great job. You're young in your faith, but you're, killing- you're being talked about for hundreds of miles for how well you're living out your faith. And then he now turns to defending his own call because there's been some lies and accusations about Paul as a, as a proclaimer of the gospel. Paul's being effective and it's stirring people up negatively and positively. And so the is always trying to shut down the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's read verses one, two, three, and four of chapter two. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul was there for three Sabbaths and he got ran out of town. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. We're here to please men but God who examines our hearts. That's our responsibility is to please God, not to please man. I love it. Okay, so let's go through these one verse at a time. Let's read verse one again. He he says, you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. Why doesn't he just say, for you know? Why does he say you yourselves know? He says for you, why didn't he just say for you know that our coming was not in vain? But he says you yourselves know. Look at verse 9 in the previous chapter. Look what it says in verse 9. For they themselves report how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Why doesn't it just say for they report? It says they themselves know you turned and it says in verse 1, you yourselves know that you turned. Paul. He's putting a massive emphasis on fact upon reality that the gospel message impacts lives. And so it's, it's a way of emphasizing in, in the Greek language hey, they themselves know and you yourselves know. So let's focus on the, the effects of the gospel message because there's power in the name of Jesus. And that's what he's saying. They know it and you know it. See, in Christianity, as we said earlier, it's all about the gospel, that's the football is the gospel. And so if you can discredit the messenger, what then do you discredit as well? The message. If you can discredit the messenger, then you can discredit the message. That's what they're trying to do to Paul. People were charging Paul with unworthy motives and improper conduct. Can you imagine that? With what he's gone through, with what we just read in Acts, that he's being accused of improper conduct and deceitful scheming. Paul was trying to redirect them to the reality of their own lives as witnessed by others, chapter 1, verse 9, and as witnessed by themselves, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is reminding them, listen, (laughs) that what they know should be and is stronger than what they hear, which aims to discredit the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that what they know should be and is stronger than what they hear. Because the things that we hear oftentimes aim to discredit the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The enemy has to get in the way of that. The enemy is and will be relentless in steering the church away from the main thing. Satan wants to distract us from the truth that we know with the things that we hear. The reason that Paul can say our coming to you was not in vain is found in verse 9 of chapter 1. That's the reason he says in verse 1, our coming to you was not in vain because of verse 9 in chapter 1. You turned. Our message, the gospel message was effective because you turned to God from idols to serve a living God and a true God. They went from lies to truth. They went from death to life. That's the proof of the gospel message he's saying. Is that not the gospel message summed up? Isn't that what that song's about, breaking every chain, taking us from death to life and from lies to truth? That's the gospel message. It's not any more complex than that. We shall know the truth and the truth shall set us free. But the enemy will continue to pursue taking us from life to death and from truth to lies. That's his goal all day, every day, a relentless pursuit of taking us from life to death and from truth to lies. And Paul's saying, look at your lives. People are witnessed the gospel message was effective. Your own lives witness that the gospel message is effective. Perhaps we find here in verse one also some good questions and some good observations. Here's, I'm gonna give you five. There is an inherent expectation that the word is to bring results in the lives of its hearers. In verse 1, it says, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you, and they're coming with the gospel message, was not in vain. If we're coming, there should not be, we should not be coming in vain. And so the gospel should not be coming in vain, right? Our coming to you is not in vain. There is an inherent expectation that the word of God brings results in the lives of those who hear it. We're great at hearing, oftentimes we're not great at doing. And so the word comes to us in vain. Secondly, is the word coming? (laughs) If the word is coming to you, excel still more. Do you allow the word to come to you? Is the word of God coming to your lives? And if so, excel still more. It's coming to you right now. Excel still more. How does it come to you the other days of the week? Here's the third thing. In today's culture and marketplace, access to the word is abundant. Radio stations with messages and, and podcasts and, and YouTubes and, and church websites, we should never be lacking for, for God's word coming into our life. Never. Right? We, we, smartphones, like we always have access. You can have the Bible read to you. Right? If you don't want to read the Bible? You can put it on your, right in your, in, your, in your car and it'll just read to you. That's fantastic. We should never be lacking the word in our lives. And if the word is coming, is it coming in vain? Oftentimes it does. Oftentimes I fight the Lord and I fight the Lord and I fight the Lord and he's going, dude, why does my word continue to come to you in vain? It happens to me. I'm sure it happens to you. And we wrestle with that and just say, Lord, I want to do better. And so the word just keeps coming. And one day those areas where it comes in vain, I hope to be more victorious, just like I'm sure you do as well. Because when the word comes, it should turn us, as it says in chapter 1, verse 9. When the gospel comes, we should turn. There are some things that we should be turning and turning and turning and turning and turning. We're never done turning away from our flesh and away from evil and away from the world and turning towards Jesus Christ. The word should turn us. It comes to us not so that we learn it, not so that we know things, so that it turns us towards righteousness, so that we repent of our sin. Amen? Yeah, good word, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, verse two. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Verse two, man, I mean, that's a sermon all by itself. The table of contents in verse two is astounding. Let me give you the table of contents. There's three things that are happening in verse two. The first one, these words go together. Suffered, mistreated, and much opposition. That's one, that's table contents number one. Hardship, if you will. Suffered, mistreated, and much opposition. That word opposition in the Greek is agonai, it means struggle, it's agony. That's one. First part of our table of contents. The second part, smack dab in the middle of, t- of verse two, is the gospel of God. Oh, oh okay. When well, the middle of verse two is the gospel of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that we have that's table of contents number two. That table of contents number one is suffered, mistreated, much opposition. Hmm. And then table of contents number three is boldness to speak. That's in verse two. There's a lot going on in verse two. At the center of it is the gospel message, a boldness to speak, but you got oppos- opposition, mistreatment. In suffering, that's the table of contents of verse two. Think about it. Speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ from the enemy's viewpoint must be stopped. It must be stopped. He's rallying the troops. What do we gotta do to stop the gospel message of Jesus Christ from being proclaimed? We must do anything and everything in our power to stop the message of Jesus Christ. There's a battle that rages for our souls, church, They suffered for speaking the gospel. They were mistreated for speaking the gospel. And it says, amid, I love that word, in the face of is what that word amid means. In the face of much opposition, they spoke the gospel. (laughs) If you are suffering, being mistreated, and experiencing opposition because you are attempting with your life to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ, The Lord commends you today. God commends you today. It is hard at times, of course. God commends you. What an amazing testimony and example for all of us. Look at this. (laughs) This is the best I can come up with it. In the midst of badness, we can have boldness, which leads to blessedness. Praise be to our God that that's true for us, right? Right? Church, if a preacher is still indeed preaching the true gospel message of Jesus Christ, rest assured that he does so amid much opposition. Pray for pastors, not just me. Pray for pastors, as many as you, you can think of, that we continue to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Amen? No doubt, <laughs> no doubt the Thessalonians were grateful that these men were bold. They're grateful. They were grateful that these men came, that they were beaten in Philippi and they showed up in Thessalonica, probably all still bandaged up to proclaim the gospel message. I wonder who's not being blessed and who's not being set free from chains through the gospel message because the opposition that is facing many preachers today. Verse three, church. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. It's, knowing what we know about Paul, it is perhaps shocking that he even has to defend himself against these three words, right? It's just got to be hard. It's got to be shocking. He or they were being accused of error, impurity, and deceit, which we'll get into uh, next week. None of these things were true, yet the accusations came. Looking back, I wonder if any of them felt guilty or even foolish for having believed these false accusations about such godly men. Let's remind ourselves of the different names of Satan found throughout Scripture. (laughs) He's the tempter, it says in Scripture. The enemy, evil one, adversary, deceiver, father of lies, murderer, sinner, (laughs) If Paul does indeed not act out these things in verse 3, if he's the opposite, if he exhorts them in truth, if he exhorts them in purity, if he exhorts them with clear intentions, how is it that these three words of verse 3 are even associated with his life? The enemy plants lies, doesn't he? The enemy's crafty, all those things that we just said about the enemy. He plants lies or even doubt, in order to steer us away from the gospel message of Jesus Christ by taking down one of his messengers. Hmm. Look, hmm. all of us, we all have many voices speaking into our lives. All of us have many voices speaking into our lives. Who has the biggest voice? Who has the biggest voice in your life? We're in verse four. Verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. So herein lies the challenge for those who have been approved and entrusted to preach the gospel. Herein lies the challenge of God's church not just pastors, all of us. Who are we going to please? How are we going to do it? How do we live our lives? Pleasing a man or pleasing the Lord? Consider this. <laughs> Think about this. After three and a half years of preaching the gospel, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, his public ministry was three and a half years. We can rest assured that Jesus was approved. So far, so good. You guys okay with me on that one? That he was entrusted and he was pleasing to God. Can we say that Jesus Christ was approved, entrusted, and pleasing to God? You bet. But he wasn't necessarily pleasing to man. When he ascended to heaven, arguably there was just over 100. I think it said there was 120 in the upper room. There wasn't a whole lot of followers of Jesus Christ, maybe over 100. Oh, the crowds followed him, but true disciples So he pleased his father, he was entrusted, he did well, he was approved, and he was pleasing to God, but you can argue that he wasn't necessarily pleasing to man. Hmm. Pastor John, my predecessor, many of you know who I'm talking about, some of you don't, did not please everyone. Pastor Dave, who's been here, I think, since the church was a year old, that was 14 years now, and he preaches about every, every fourth weekend. Pastor Dave will not please everyone. I will not please everyone. You know that all too well. Whoever comes after me will not please everyone. Do we speak? Do we walk? Do we live in order to please God? Or do we speak and do we walk and do we live in order to please man? Church, is a good question for us. How much of our lives are consumed with pleasing God? Be honest with the Lord about that. Maybe it's not enough. How much of our lives are consumed with pleasing God? Similarly, how much of our lives are consumed with pleasing men? We're doing one or the other. That's what this verse tells us. We're either doing things to please God or we're doing things to please ourselves or somebody else, but not the Lord. And we're guilty of that, of course. Here's what's interesting. Check this out. Do we even know what pleasing man looks like? Do we even know what that means, to do things to please man? If I do something to please Don Noskoff, that's fantastic. I'm dialed in with Don. But those same things might not be pleasing to Dave. Well, that's a problem. But then I get that figured out, and then i got to worry about Laura. So now I don't know if those things that please YouTube are going to please her. Can I even do, can I even please mankind? Do we even know what that looks like? Is it even possible? I venture to say it's impossible to please man. And yet we spend so much time trying to do the very thing that's impossible to accomplish. But what about God? Do we even know it pleases our Lord? And is it possible? Scripture says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Scripture also says that we are to please God. And it tells us how to please him. And so we can know how to please God and we're capable of doing so. We don't even know how to please man and we're incapable of doing so. And yet we get those backwards all the time. Let me show you some scriptures, just some verses that'll help us understand that we are to please God. Romans 8.8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why we cannot have access to God. We cannot get to heaven in our flesh. We can't earn our way there. We have to give our lives to Jesus Christ and then we are dwelt with the Holy Spirit. We cannot in the flesh please God. We have to rely and trust in his Holy Spirit to be pleasing to him. Ephesians 6.6, 6, Paul says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. What do we do to please men? What are they looking at? What are they looking at? But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Man sees one thing, God sees another. And guess what? Oftentimes they're different, aren't they? What we see about others is not necessarily what's going on in their heart and we think we can see into people's hearts and we just can't. But God can. Praise be to God for that. Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 1. He says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It is pleasing. If we want to be pleasing to God, we can be pleasing to God, and that requires us to grow in our knowledge of him as we're doing right now and as we should be doing arguably every day of the week to be meditating on scripture, to be in the word of God. That's pleasing to him, to be increasing in his knowledge, to be bearing fruit in every good work. Look at the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 11, verse six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We are to be people of faith. And he who comes to God must believe that he is. That's what faith means. It's putting your belief in something that's believable. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We are to seek God all the time. That pleases him when we seek him. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Are we living a sacrificial life? Jesus is known as the sacrificial lamb. And so, we, on some level, in order to be pleasing to God, are to be people of sacrifice. There's one thing that marks this church we sacrifice. We are a church that is not afraid to sacrifice and to serve. I think we do that well. And Paul would say, Excel still more. It pleases God when we do good and when we share and when we sacrifice. So, church, if, we, if indeed we are to please God, if indeed we are to please God, it would appear from verse 4 that when we do so, it probably will come from, with some displeasure of man. If we're going to please God, there's a good chance it's not going to be pleasing to man. And if we please man, I can guarantee you, it ain't going to please God, right? Right? Sometimes when we please God, other men and women in our lives are pleased, but sometimes not. So, may all of us have a healthy fear, and that fear, biblically, is a reverential fear. A reverential fear. May we all have a fear, knowing that God, and only God, can examine our hearts. May we never lose sight of that. Say, God, whatever's going on around me, you know my heart, Because sometimes things are going on around us, right? And we can say, God, you know my heart. You examine my heart. So may we all have a healthy fear, knowing that God and only God can examine our hearts, because he does examine our hearts. <laughs> but along with that fear may come the frustration, also knowing that man cannot. Sometimes we're frustrated. Where God knows my heart, but man questions my heart. And then it's frustrating. It's like, wow, how is that happening? God has examined my heart and it's pure before the Lord, but man doesn't see my heart. And so sometimes we can be frustrated with that. Amen? Church, as we, I'm gonna invite up the worship team. Let me leave you with this. May we leave here today more committed to becoming God pleasers. May we leave here today, this is the takeaway, leave today being more committed than ever to being God-pleasers, not man-pleasers. Make sense? All right, let me pray. Hey, we're gonna close in, 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 a, in a worship song uh, while I'm praying, uh, and then after the song, if you need prayer from our prayer team, please go see them down in the corner. Let's pray. Almighty God, we we wanna please you, Lord. We so desperately wanna please you. You love us so much. You're so gracious and so patient and so kind, and it just draws us into this desire to be pleasing to you. And so, Lord, we indeed desire to be pleasing to you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would show us what that looks like. Show us where we're, where we're pleasing man and just lovingly rebuke us and correct us and nudge us in the direction of pleasing God instead. And give us the joy of doing so. Make that abundantly clear that we're being pleasing to our Heavenly Father and that we can have the joy in doing that. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.